Hi there, this is Edwin Crozier with the Franklin Church of Christ, and I want to welcome you as we open God's Word and study it together, and thank you for joining us. Perhaps you have seen Tim LaHaye's Left Behind books, or perhaps you've seen the bumper stickers that say, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. In any case, I have no doubt that you've heard of the rapture doctrine. The question is, does the Bible teach the rapture doctrine? That's exactly what we're going to be looking at in today's lesson. So let me invite you, open your Bible, and let's find out, does the Bible teach the rapture? You can't go almost a day in our society without hearing somebody talk about the rapture. There are books about it, sermons about it, classes about it. There are even bumper stickers about it. The rapture. But the main question that we really have to ask when we consider the rapture is, does the Bible really teach the rapture? And that's what we're going to be taking just a few moments this morning to look at. What does the Bible say about this concept that really, as far as a lot of major, quote, Christian religions today, while not every church holds it as their creedalized position, just about everyone who claims to be Christian today hold some aspect of this rapture belief. So much so that if you even question the rapture, folks believe you are questioning the very fabric of Christianity and questioning the Bible itself. But that is the question. Does the Bible teach the rapture? Before we examine that, would you bow with me in prayer? God and Father in heaven, we humble ourselves before you. We're so thankful for your word that gives us the answers to the questions that we have in our minds. And we pray, Father, that you would strengthen us to understand your word as we look at this difficult and sometimes confusing topic, this topic that is taught by a great many people today. We pray that you would help us to have our eyes enlightened, that we might understand your word and know what your truth is about the end of time. Help us, Father, to serve you based on what we learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is the rapture? just want to explain to you just a little bit. There are some variations on this theory, and hopefully the chart that I'm going to put up here will be able to help you understand if you're not familiar with it. But when it comes to the rapture, those who believe in the rapture are premillennialists, typically. And what that means is they believe that right now we're in the church age. And we're heading toward what's going to be this seven years of tribulation. The first half of it's not going to be too bad. The last half it's going to be really bad. And following the end of that tribulation, Jesus is going to return in what they call His glorious appearing. Following that, He is going to establish His millennial kingdom. It's supposed to last for a thousand years. Didn't have enough room on the board to put what's going to happen at the end of that. It's going to go on for about a thousand years. And then you have Armageddon, and then the world will be destroyed. But Jesus will set up that kingdom from Jerusalem here on earth. Now, the rapture theory, there are variations on it, all that have to do with when they believe the rapture is going to take place. But all raptures believe that in some relation to this tribulation, Jesus is going to come and He is going to call home all those that are His children. He's going to call home the church and they're going to go to be with Him in heaven and then they'll return during this glorious appearing. Now, there are some that believe that the the rapture is post-tribulation. In other words, at the very end of the tribulation, Jesus comes, calls His people up to Him in heaven, and then immediately comes right back down with them and has the millennial kingdom. Others are mid-tribulation rapturous, and they believe that about this halfway mark, there's going to be a point in here, we're in the middle of this tribulation, God is going to call home all His children. Jesus is going to come in the 
first half of his second coming, they'll point out, and then he'll call them home. The majority, though, believe in what's called the pre-trib rapture, the pre-tribulation. In other words, before the tribulation begins, Jesus is going to come in the clouds, in the sky. He's going to gather together his elect, and he's going to take them all home to be with him in heaven. And then at the end of the tribulation, he's going to come back with them in his glorious appearing and establish his millennial kingdom. Now, automatically you see some issues with that because we have his second coming, which contains actually his second and his third coming. And yet, what we're supposed to believe is that that's actually two halves of his second coming, all divided up over those seven years. So just briefly again, we're heading towards this tribulation. There's going to be an Antichrist who comes along and rules the world, and things are just going to get really bad. And somewhere in relation to all this, Jesus calls all of his children out of the world, leaving everybody else behind, and then at the end of the seven years, comes and sets up his millennial kingdom when he comes in his glorious appearing. Because the majority of folks that believe rapture believe the pre-tribulation position, that's the one that we're going to be focusing on the most this morning. However, by the time we're done, I believe we're going to demonstrate that the Bible doesn't teach the rapture at any point, before tribulation, middle of tribulation, after tribulation. In fact, it doesn't even teach this concept of the tribulation and the millennial kingdom. But we're not going to get into all of that. You know, it wasn't very fair for Jimmy to get up here and the first thing out of his mouth was, this is going to be a long sermon. But I am trying to keep it shorter. We're not going to get into the, the tribulation and the kingdom. We're just going to talk about the rapture this morning. Pre-tribulation rapture. That's what it is. I want to begin, though, by pointing out just a couple of things. Why is this so popular? Why is it spreading so greatly and why is it so widely believed? The very first thing I want you to understand, it is not widely believed because it's found in the Bible. Look in Matthew 7 real quick. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. There are a whole lot of people that have the idea that if a lot of people believe something, then it must be true. But what this points out is that few will follow the narrow way, many will follow the broad way. So just because this is very popular doesn't mean it's biblical. The second thing I want to point out to you regarding why it is so popular is because those who teach this doctrine follow in the footsteps of Satan in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 6. And I hate to be so blunt about it, but I think we need to understand this. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 6, as Satan was tempting Jesus, it said, he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Satan called on a passage of Scripture to support his position to get Jesus to do what he wanted to do. Jesus, of course, knew the Scripture well and was able to say, yes, but it's written again. In other words, it's written someplace else that modifies that and helps us understand. One of the problems that we have today with those who teach this premillennial, pre-trib rapture, any point of the rapture, is that they will go to Bible verses and they'll use a lot of Bible language. And if all we ever do is just take a casual glance at these passages and see their phrases and see their terms, there are going to be a lot of people that are just duped by that, saying, oh, it's in the Bible. But one of the problems is, is that rapturists and premillennialists use, use Bible phrases, but they don't use them in Bible ways. We've got to get into the Bible and find out exactly what is that saying. It may use some of their terms, but is it using it the same way they are? And I believe we'll find out that it does not. That the Scripture does not teach the rapture. But there's a third thing that I want to point out to you why it's so popular. It's popular, brethren, because they're talking about it. 
Premillennialists and rapturists do not have the Bible to back them up, but they are out there with their propaganda, with their teaching, and they're making a lot of noise. And they're making more noise than we are. They're out there writing books. Any of you heard of the Left Behind series? Twelve books. Taking the World by Storm has done more to promote premillennialism than Hal Lindsey ever did. They're out there writing books. They're having TV programs and radio programs and websites. And we all sit back in our congregational assemblies kind of biting our nails and afraid to talk about these things because that prophecy is just so hard to understand. And they're popular because they're making more noise than we are. We've got to learn how to deal with these issues so that we can talk to people about them and get the truth out there. Because, brethren, if we don't, who will? They're popular because they're getting their teaching out. And we've got to make sure that we get the truth out. What's this teaching based on? According to Tim LaHaye, who wrote Left Behind, I've got a couple of his books up here, try to juggle all these. I've got a book here, Rapture Under Attack, and Are We Living in the End Times. This book, Are We Living in the End Times, is supposedly the doctrinal companion to the Left Behind series. In these books, Tim LaHaye says that there are basically three major passages. They've got lots of little passages they go to, but three major passages upon which they base the rapture theory. The first is John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. John chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. In John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. In this passage, Jesus says, I'm leaving. And I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back and get you. And therefore, the rapture says, see, there it is. That's the rapture. At some time in the future, Jesus is going to come and get His disciples and take them to the place that He's prepared for them. The second passage is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. This is perhaps the main passage used to discuss the rapture. I had a friend one time, Marita was talking to her, some friends of ours back in Texas who believed the rapture. And Marita said, I just don't think that's in the Bible. And she said, it's right here, First Thessalonians chapter 4. If you don't believe the rapture, you just don't believe the Bible, because there it is. First Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means perceive those who are asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend, with, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words." Here it points out that at some time in the future, Jesus is going to return. Those who are dead in Christ will be raised from the dead first. And those who are alive in Christ are going to be caught up in the air to meet them and will always be with Christ. And therefore, we can comfort one another with these words. And I just want to give you one warning here. There are a lot of folks that when they want to talk about the rapture, the first thing they'll say is why you never find it, the word in the Bible. That just tells you something. Well, lest you fall into that trap, as I've done in the past, Somebody who's savvy, who understands the background of their doctrine will say, right here it is, the word caught up in the Latin translation is rapidzo, 
which is where we get the term rapture. And so if, if that's, that's what they'll say to you if they know the background of their own doctrine. So, so don't make that argument. Just show what the Bible really says instead of trying to shortcut it and just say the word's not there because they'll point out right here is where it comes from. The Latin translation has the word rapture in it. So the, sec- or the third passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 15 beginning at verse 51. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 beginning at verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, excuse me, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Here's the passage. It points out sometime down in the future, there's going to be a last trumpet, and we're all going to be changed. We're not all asleep. Some of us are going to continue to live. The sleep here refers to death. So some are going to be dead, some are going to be alive. But when that trumpet sounds, we're all going to be changed. And we're going to go up and be with God. And we're going to be raised incorruptible. And our mortality will put on immortality. And death will be swallowed up in victory. And Hades will no longer have its sting. And there it is, we're told. That is the rapture. But considering these three passages, I think you probably already, just from reading them, can see some of the problems. The main point that is driven here is look at what is in these passages. From the rapture's mindset, they'll say, look at what's in these passages. And look at what is not in these passages. They'll point out that you look at these passages and all the Christians are caught up. They're either raised or they're caught up, but it doesn't say anything about what happens to the non-Christians. It doesn't say anything about a kingdom being established. It doesn't say anything about an antichrist being dealt with. It doesn't say anything about Satan being dealt with. And so, when we look at these passages, we realize that it must be something separate from this glorious appearing where God does all these things of dealing with the antichrist, conquering these kings, and setting up a kingdom. Well, since that's not in those passages, this must be something different. It must be the rapture. Can you already see a problem with that, though? It's true. All three of those passages, we just read them, not a single one of them says anything about the non-Christians being raised from the dead. It doesn't say anything about them being judged. But did you notice this? It doesn't say anything about them being left behind on the earth either, does it? Not a single one of those passages say anything about non-Christians at all. And that ought to cause us to stop and think. You see, the fact is, those passages, while they certainly teach that at some point the Christians are going to be caught up to be with God forever, they don't deal with what happens to the non-Christians at those times at all. Why? Because in these passages, in these particular verses, Jesus, Paul, they weren't concerned about what happened to the non-Christians. They were providing hope for Christians. Jesus, as He was talking to His apostles, were talking about the fact that He was about to die and He was about to be taken away from them. They needed comfort there. It didn't matter what was going to happen to those folks who didn't follow Christ. They needed to know that Jesus was going to be with them. In 1 Corinthians and in 1 Thessalonians, Paul was writing to comfort Christians. They didn't need to know what was going to happen to non-Christians at the end of the time. They needed to know what was going to happen for them so that they could be comforted. In fact, Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 18, that was his main point. He said, therefore, 
comfort one another with these words. What was it about? It was about comforting Christians. It wasn't about giving a step-by-step, play-by-play prophecy of what was going to happen when Jesus returned. It was just giving hope to Christians. There's a few more things I want you to know. I'd like to quote to you something that Tim LaHaye admits, which is a surprising admission in this book right here. Rapture Under Attack on page 75. He says, One objection to the pre-tribulation rapture is that no one passage of Scripture teaches the two aspects of His second coming separated by the tribulation. This is true. That's what he says. This is true. Okay, what he's pointing out is, well, according to their tribulation theory, according to their rapture theory, Jesus comes here and He comes here with seven years in between. He said, now there's no verse, there's no passage that talks about these two different events in the same passage. This is true. Amazingly enough, though, well, he goes on to say, our task is to carefully study all the second coming passages to see if they're talking about the same event. Do you understand the point there? He says, we can't find a passage that actually describes these two events. So what we've got to do is all the passages that we know are talking about the second coming, we've got to really study them and find out, are they really talking about the same event? Or are they talking about two different, distinct events? But amazingly enough, after making that admission, he says, but there is one verse. Titus chapter 3 and verse 12. And I want you to read this because I just want you to see the manipulation, the tinkering, the playing that has to be done with Scripture in order to come up with this position. Titus chapter 3. Let me back that up. Not 3.12, 2.13. Titus chapter 2, verse 13 looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There it is. Despite having admitted that there's no passages that describe the second coming in two separate events divided by seven years or three years or however many years we want to divide it by, despite having admitted that, he then turns around and finds this passage, Titus 3.12. And you all can see it there, can't you? There it is, a rapture and a glorious appearing. Y'all see it? I mean, there it is, as plain as day. Didn't you know the blessed hope? That's the rapture. And the glorious appearing, well, obviously, that's the glorious appearing. Amazingly enough, if you were to read these books, you would think that the Bible, just up one side and down the other from beginning to end, talks about our blessed hope. And, and it's the rapture. That we'll just find it in every passage. And the glorious appearing, that we'll just find it all over the place. You know what? Not only is this the only verse in the entire Bible that uses these two phrases together, this is the only verse in the entire Bible that uses these two phrases, period. That's it. And somehow, from Paul saying, we're looking forward to our blessed hope and the glorious appearing, why, that's two different things. I hope as you look at that, you can realize that our blessed hope is His glorious appearing. As Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28 points out, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28. We'll begin in verse 27. As it is appointed for them to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly await for Him, He'll appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. That is our blessed hope. We were saved in that hope that He was going to appear a second time 
to save us from our sins. He appeared the first time to offer the sacrifice, and the second time He'll appear to take us home so that we will not be judged. Very interesting. The third thing that I want to point out to you comes, I want to read to you a quote. What did I do with this? I tell you, when you get all these books up here, it's hard to keep up with everything I'm wanting to show you. I just want you to read a quote from Rapture Under Attack, that same book I showed you just a few moments ago, because I want you to see how inconsistent the rapturists are. This is from page 37, Rapture Under Attack. Notice what's missing. Now, he's talking about these John 14, 1 Thessalonians 4, and 1 Corinthians 15. Notice what's missing in these rapture events. Christ has not come to the earth with power and the holy angels as He promised. Instead, He comes in the air, which is defined as in the clouds, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, 17. Nor does He set up His earthly kingdom, for He gathers His translated church into His Father's house. He doesn't deal with the Antichrist or bind Satan, nor does He destroy the kings of the earth who are gathered at Jerusalem to oppose Him. What He says is why we see these three passages and they talk about Jesus returning. But look at all these things that aren't there. Now, if they were consistent with this, maybe they would have a point. But i got another passage I'd like for you to read from Matthew chapter 24, beginning at verse 29. In Matthew chapter 24, beginning at verse 29, He says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, verse 30 says, The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He'll send forth His angels with a great trumpet, and they'll gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to another. Now, notice what's missing in this passage. Okay? There, there's not any, he's coming in the clouds. Where does He come over here? Clouds. He doesn't set up His earthly kingdom. I don't see anything over here about an earthly kingdom. He, uh, let's see here, doesn't deal with the Antichrist. Nothing in here about Antichrist. Doesn't destroy kings. Doesn't bind Satan. I don't find any of that in this passage. And so, I would think, aha! This must be a rapture passage, Right? Because it doesn't have any of these glorious appearing things. Guess what? It's a glorious appearing. You know why? Because Lahay is a pre-tribulation rapturous. And this says that this happens after the tribulation. You can't have the rapture coming after the tribulation. And so suddenly, all these rules he made about these other passages being about the rapture, they don't apply anymore. Because this one, even though it says the exact same thing as these three passages that he's talking about in that paragraph, even though it's the same concepts, well, that can't be rapture because it happens after the tribulation. I hope I'm impressing upon you what we have here is inconsistency. What we have here is, I'm going to make up rules for how I interpret these passages, but then I'm going to change those rules when the interpreting them that way doesn't fit with what I want to believe. Brethren, that's just not honest. And that's not the way we study our Bibles. And we can't allow that, and we can't believe things based on that type of shoddy Bible study. The fourth thing I'd like for you to consider is that while Mr. LaHaye will admit that there are no passages in the Bible that talk about two halves of a second coming and a resurrection, he doesn't want to admit that there are passages that demonstrate there's only one resurrection. John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29. Jesus said in John 5, verse 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. You see what happens there? He says, An hour is coming 
when everyone will be resurrected. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. According to this theory, we not only have seven years between those two resurrections, we actually have seven plus a thousand because the resurrection of the evil doesn't take place until the end of the thousand years. I want to know, brethren, especially from those who will tell us that they are the only ones in the world that actually take all of the Bible literally, how, when he says there's an hour coming, we can fit 1,007 years in the middle of that. It just doesn't work. Jesus said there is a time coming. An hour. Not a millennium. And everyone will be resurrected. And that's it. It'll be over. One more interesting thing I'd like to point out to you. The timeline that the rapturists have just really doesn't work. The rapturists will tell us that in Revelation chapter 4, in Revelation chapter 4, when God says to Jesus, come up, when God says to John, come up here, is Revelation 4.1. That is actually the Revelation's prophecy of the rapture. And from that point on, beginning in Revelation 4 on through Revelation 19, it's talking about the tribulation. And then you start talking about the millennial kingdom in chapter 20. Now I want you to remember that one of the passages that teach the rapture is 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 52. Remember it said, we won't all sleep, we'll all be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the at which trumpet? Y'all see what it says? The last trumpet. Now, we may not understand everything about the book of Revelation, but we know that in Revelation there are seven trumpets after Revelation chapter 4, aren't there? And we also remember that in the glorious appearing, according to Matthew chapter 24, 29, you remember that passage we just read up there? What did it say would happen? The trumpet would sound. According to the rapturists, after the last trumpet, there's actually going to be eight more trumpets. And I just had to point this out to you because amazingly enough, in his books, Rapture Under Attack and, in, and uh, Will You Escape the Tribulation and Are We Living in the End Times, what he does is, why, well, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, that's the last trumpet for the church. Is that what your Bible says? So once again, what I want to point out to you is that in order to believe the rapture, we have to come to the Bible and say, I'm just going to make it say what I want it to say. I'm just going to make it mean what I want it to mean. And so I know I've got a problem. According to my theory, there's actually eight more trumpets after this trumpet is sounded, but this is the last one. So, well, it's the last one for the church. But my Bible just says the last trumpet. What's your Bible say? Once again, this is coming from the folks who say we are the only ones in the world that take all of the Bible literally. Except for where when literally it doesn't mean what we want it to mean. And then we have to add or take away. It's just a very sad position to hold. I hope you can realize this position is not supported by these passages. These passages don't teach this. Well, what does the Bible teach about this? First passage I want you to look at, we'll go through this very quickly. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians, we're going to begin in chapter 4. It's true that verses 13 through verse 18, which we've already read, don't say anything about those who are lost. But let's not get confused by the chapter break. Let's just keep reading. Verse 18, he says, Therefore comfort one another with these words, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly 
that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. As labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day would overtake you as a thief. You're all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as the helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. That whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. You see, he's still talking about what he was talking about in chapter 4. And he points out that this is a day that will not overtake the Christians. He points out that this is a day that they are waiting for and a day they are preparing for. But what will happen to the non-Christians on that day? Not seven years of tribulation. Did you see what it said? Sudden destruction. See, those other passages that we read just moments ago didn't tell us what would happen to the non-Christians on that day. But this passage tells us, doesn't it? When we keep reading past the chapter break, we find out what will happen. Sudden destruction. Another passage. Flip a page over and look at the second letter to the Thessalonians, beginning in chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. Which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. Since it's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. What does he say? He said there is going to be one day that's coming in our future. And what's going to happen on that day? What's going to happen on that day is that those who have believed the gospel and have obeyed the gospel, they're going to glorify and marvel in Christ. But those who haven't are going to go through not seven years of tribulation, not another opportunity to perhaps serve the Lord and come around before the glorious appearing, sudden destruction, away from the presence of God. Everlasting destruction, this passage says. Away from the presence of God and from His power. What does this passage tell us? That there's only one day coming and judgment's going to happen. And then it's all going to be over. And there's not going to be anything else. And those who haven't obeyed God and haven't believed Him, they're going to be punished. They're not going to be given seven years of second chances. They're going to go to God in judgment right then. Got one more passage I want to read to you, but before we do that, I've got to read a quote coming from both of these books. The first one's here from Rapture Under Attack. The second's Are We Living in the End Times. By the way, I do have outlines. I'll put them out on the table. I know we're moving through this very quickly, but you can study it some more on your own. Now, this book, Rapture Under Attack, was not actually written to deal with folks like you and me. He's actually writing this to, to get on to the, the folks who are mid-tribulation rapturous and post-tribulation rapturous. And so in the middle of this, he says... I long have been mystified the good brethren who love the Lord in His return except the mid- or post-trib position when it destroys a central teaching of our Lord. But in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. And of that day and hour no one knows, no, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. That's from Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. 
There's no secrecy about his coming in their views. Anyone can calculate precisely when he, Jesus, will come. He'll return 1,260 days after the signing of the covenant with the Antichrist, if the mid-trib view is right, or seven years after that event according to the post-trib position. Both views effectively destroy imminency. Only the pre-trib view retains the constant expectation that Christ could come at any moment. The context of this passage, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9 through 10, is the rapture. For Christians are not waiting for the glorious appearing. No, the Christians in Thessalonica were waiting for the coming of Christ for his church. That is the rapture. They already knew the tribulation or wrath to come and follow the rapture. And that's the part that God had promised to keep the Christians out of. Two things I want you to notice here. First of all, this rapture got to take place. It's, it's got to be something that you, you can't know. Why? Because it comes like a thief in the night. Number two, notice here, Christians don't wait for the glorious appearing. Christians don't wait for the glorious appearing. Keep those thoughts in your head, and let's look at 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And here's an amazing thing. Remember our quote? He pointed out why... Can't be the glorious appearance. I mean, it can't. The rapture can't be in the middle of the tribulation or at the end because it's got to be like a thief in the night. Well, here's something that's like a thief in the night. Isn't that what it says? But guess what we're told? That's not the rapture. That's the glorious appearing. Well, now remember. Of course, I don't have the the chart up here now. But if it's boy, it can't be like a thief in the night if it's at the end of the tribulation, can it? Because they know exactly when it is. But according to Lahaye, that's glorious appearing. Once again, not consistent. But what I really want you to notice about this passage is a couple of things. First of all, as you read on down through those verses, this is a day the Christians are doing what? Waiting for. This is a day they're preparing for. But he already told us they can't prepare and wait for the glorious appearing. They're waiting for the rapture. But not, not here. You see the problem? Further, I want you to notice what happens on that day. The earth and everything in it is burned up. It's dissolved. This, by the way, demonstrates the error of all the tribulation positions, all the rapture positions, I should say, because when Jesus comes again, that's it. The world is gone, and there's nothing left for anyone else to be left behind on. There's nothing left for a millennial kingdom. It's over. That's what the Bible says. You see, the Bible says that we're right now in this church age, and we've got all the time that God's giving us in this time right here. And we don't know how long it's going to be. It might be over this afternoon. It may be tomorrow. It may be next week. It may be a hundred years from now. We don't know. It may be our great, 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 great grandkids who face that day. But there is one day coming in which God will appear, and Jesus will appear in His glorious appearing, our blessed hope. And after that comes judgment. And we'll face either an eternity in heaven or an eternity in hell. And that's it. And so the question remains for us, are you ready? You see, the sad position of the rapturist is that, well, there's a day coming, and then after that, everybody who didn't believe gets a second chance. And it's a sad thing because it's giving false hope to folks. You've already received your second chance, your third chance, your fifteenth chance, because you've, you've had however many days that you've been alive since you've heard the gospel. Those are the chances God's given you. And He's patient because He doesn't want anybody to perish. 
But once this glorious appearing comes, that's it. That's it. Are you ready for that day? I hope this has been helpful to you, seeing what the Bible really says about the rapture. We're not questioning the Bible when we say it doesn't teach the rapture. We're not saying that Jesus won't return. We're not saying that Jesus won't catch up His saved to be with Him forever. All we're pointing out is that on that day that He does that, He's not leaving anyone behind. Perhaps He will resurrect, as 1 Thessalonians 4 said, not perhaps, but definitely He'll resurrect those who are in Him first. But on that same day, those who aren't in Him will face sudden destruction. Are you ready for that day? I certainly hope today's lesson was beneficial to you as we ask the question, does the Bible teach the rapture? What did we learn? No, the Bible does not teach the rapture. The Bible teaches that we are moving toward a day in which Jesus will return. He'll call His saints to be at home with Him forever, and the rest will endure eternal judgment and condemnation. The world will be destroyed in that day. The major question we need to ask is, are we ready for that day? If someone has given you this lesson, let me invite you to come to our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. You are free to download as many of the lessons you find there as you would like. We have them in audio format and in outline format. Take them and use them in any way that will glorify God and benefit His children. Perhaps you have questions about the lesson, about the rapture, about premillennialism, or maybe about the Franklin Church of Christ. If we can help you with any of those questions, please give us a call at 615-794-2359 or contact us through our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.